We're still in Luke's gospel, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. If you realize that as humans, I believe we were all built to submit to a king, to adore a king. In case you haven't been paying attention, we don't have a monarchy here in America. We left England to get out underneath a a flawed ruler, but we were still created to submit to a king. Many countries still have some kind of royalty left, some kind of royal line that's there. It seems as though our culture is very much obsessed with royalty still. When Prince Harry and Meghan left the UK and did an interview with Oprah, millions tuned in to find out what they were going to say and then to tweet about it later. They want to know the royals. They want to understand them, even adore them. Years and years ago, 1981, 750 million people tuned in worldwide to watch Princess Diana get married. 750 million people. As humans, we're fascinated with royalty. But as I said, in America, we've left the rule of a king. There's no royal line. So what do we do here in America? We create them. We create royalty. We take billionaires and athletes and movie stars and now social media stars and we turn them into kings. We crown them and we adore them. And why are there people, a significant portion of our population, given over to the sway of powerful figures, adoring them and spending their time worshiping them? Why, why is this their need for kings? Why is there a need to crown people, to create them and to adore them? It's been said that democracy is medicine, not food. You can't live on medicine. It's medicine. And we have a democracy because human beings are so sinful that none can really uh, truly rule the right way. But what we really need is a king. That's what we're built for. We're built for a king. We're built to submit to a king. And and the reason why we love to think about kings, about royalty, and we, we read about it and we watch movies about it and watch TV shows about it. It's because there's this, I believe, some memory trace built into the human race that pulls us toward it. It's, it's like it's in our, in our DNA to want a king, to submit to a king. This faint memory in, in you and me of a great king, an ancient king, one who did rule with such power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory. And, and we know deep down we were built to submit to a king. We're built to give ourselves to that king. We're built to stand before and adore and serve and know that king. And like the Israelites in 1 Samuel, we we keep asking for earthly kings. We keep striving after earthly kings that cannot and will not give us what we truly need. And yet, as a culture, as a people, we keep gravitating back to them. And what I realized this morning, this this week, as I looked at this passage, is that we need a better king. We need a loving king. We need an eternal king. We need a righteous king, a, a just king. We need Jesus. But for him to be our king, he would need to die first. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem in Luke's gospel, we should already know what's about to happen to him. Luke has been deliberately setting the stage for what's going to transpire in this city. If you remember just a a chapter earlier, it was Jesus' fourth time warning his disciples of what would happen. And in Luke 18, verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. 
Jesus over and over explained to his followers of what was going to happen. He would be delivered over to be crucified, but he would rise again. He would defeat death. But before that day, Jesus would be fulfilling all sorts of Old Testament prophecies. This passage this morning, it's a, it's a lengthy one, I recognize. It's just dripping with Old Testament prophecies and allusions. We've already heard one at the beginning of our service when I read Psalm 118, and I'll mention it again later. But through all these verses, one thing should stand out to us. Jesus is the King and Messiah we truly need. So here's the main idea. We should be certain that Jesus is God's Messiah despite the rejection of him by both the rulers of his day and by many people today. Jesus is God's Messiah, and it's been abundantly clear in these verses, and I pray that you would see it clearly also this morning. So there's four points that I want to walk through as we walk through Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28, as we get all the way through chapter 20, verse 18. There's four points here. The triumphant arrival of Jesus, the devastating rejection of Jesus, the ill-advised testing of Jesus, and the closing verdict of Jesus. So, Point number one, the triumphant arrival of Jesus. Remember Luke's account of Jesus entering to Jerusalem follows the theme of kingship that, that was introduced in the prior verses. And just as the prior parable introduces a coming king, Jesus approaches the city as the blessed king who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 28, chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. Bethany was 1.7 miles east of Jerusalem on the east slope of the Mount of Olives, while Bethpage was likely to be located nearby, a little to the north of Bethany. Mount of Olives lies directly east of Jerusalem, 2,600 feet above sea level. And to reach Jerusalem, one would proceed west down the Mount of Isles through the Kidron Valley into the temple area through the eastern gate. And Jesus here along with his men, would stand there and gaze forward towards Jerusalem. They could see the city from where they were. He, was, he, he knew what was about to happen. And now was the time of his arrival. It was the end game now. He, and he sends for this cult to, to enter the city. And the question is, why did Jesus want a, a, a donkey, a, a colt? I don't think the disciples knew exactly, fully, what, what kind of king that he was coming to be. Although the cult should have been a clue for them, they probably didn't pick up on it. Jesus was not going to make a, a political statement as most of them thought he would. It was a spiritual statement. Jesus had not come to take control over the government that would never produce fruit like we think it will. He came in humility, and he came to fulfill Scripture. Zechariah 9.9 pictures God's just and rightful ruler arriving in Jerusalem, bringing salvation for them. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus rides into our lives the same way, with gentleness and humility. He does not crush us with superior might. And so if Jesus then is the king of gentleness that we see, then friends, everyone who loves him should serve him and represent him in that same way with gentleness and humility. Well, they do what Jesus asked there, verse 32, so those who were sent away and found it as Jesse told them, and they were untying the colt, and its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And that's such a, a penetrating statement right there, isn't it? The Lord has need of it. Friends, the Lord's needs are always paramount. Right away, we're confronted that Jesus is king. He is Lord. But we think of ourselves so much of the time as lords. Now, we don't think of that, we don't use that word verbiage maybe in our minds, but in your head, you think of yourself that way. You're in charge. 
You're the one making plans. You're the one dreaming of your future. You're the one who's figuring out things and deciding what to do. You're the Lord of your life. The Lord of your stuff. The Lord of your time. The Lord of your future. But then the scriptures come to us. Jesus comes to us and says, hold on there. I'm Lord. I'm king. I'm the king of your life. And you need to submit to me. And what should we do? How should we respond? How do we answer Jesus? Friends, Jesus is Lord. And the Lord commands as he wills. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus and to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He owns all that we have and all that we do and all that we are. This is what it means to be a a Christian. It means giving up control over our life and recognizing that he is Lord over all. You cannot be a Christian and deny him as Lord. And so when he has need of our service, he claims it. And we need to recognize in our passage that Jesus is our king at peace, not at war. He doesn't take control of the cult by force. He includes the owner of the cult in the decision. He doesn't overpower him. He includes them and asks of them. And the same is true of us, friends. The Lord has need of you today. Not because he's needy, not because he's lacking in anything. No, he desires to employ you for his service, to accomplish what he desires for this world. And he chooses people. He chooses us to do the work of the ministry. But he doesn't leave you by yourself to do the work on your own. No, he gives us everything we need. He gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. He supplies everything we need for life and godliness. And he will accomplish what he desires through you when we listen to the word and we seek to obey it. Friends, the the Lord's needs are paramount in this world. And so don't get sidetracked with just your needs. Seek the Lord and look to obey what he's called you to. If you remember in the prior months of Jesus' ministry, he had forbidden his disciples to publicize the fact that he was Messiah. Do you remember that earlier in the Gospels when something would happen that was monumental, healing or teaching Jesus to say, don't, don't, don't say anything. He, he would hush, hush. But now... Now the time had arrived for him to present himself as the rightful heir to the throne of God. And he was to be presented formally to the nation with clarity and and maximum publicity that he was king. He was Lord. And so we see that in verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their, their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on top of him. And they rode along and they spread their cloaks in the road. This is kind of like a first century red carpet here. And in verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest. Very similar to the words that we heard as the heavenly host cried out and praised God when Jesus came as a baby. Now the disciples rejoice and cry out in adoration of their coming king. But look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The rebuke of the Pharisees represents the real attitude of Jerusalem toward Jesus at this point. This great thing that was to be done would not be done in a corner. It would be for all the world to see and to take notice. And Jesus chastises the leaders because they they have to praise. It's as if Jesus is saying, this is is a must thing, a have-to situation. It simply has to come out. 
And if you stifle their praise, it will break out elsewhere. You cannot stop it. You can't contain it. He will be praised. And what we learn from this is that, is that what God, God will always provide a witness. Even if every mouth is stopped from praising him, God will always provide a witness to praise. The gospel will go forth. It will not be stopped. Even if these mouths would be closed up, the rocks would cry out in adoration of him. And you don't want stones screaming at you, do you? He says it has to happen. The truth will come out. It cannot be hidden away. It cannot be silenced forever. God will get his glory. The king will be praised. Well, that's the first point. Second, we look at the devastating rejection of Jesus. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. Jesus went to Jerusalem to announce the good news to the people of that city and he knew that he was going to put a choice to them. Either you will be a disciple or you will be an executioner. There will be no middle ground. There will be no third option. He went there and offered a decision and he knew what some would decide. He knew what he was doing and Jesus knew full well that they were going to do with him in extreme ways in a few days. He knew about the unjust judgment, his delivery over to the Gentiles, his sufferings, his crucifixion, it was all becoming more clear and concrete in his mind. And yet, of all the horrific things that he would suffer, what do we see in verse 41? Jesus cries out. He grieves for the people. He weeps for the city. He laments. His soul was grieving, even wailing for the rejection of his people and judgment that they would suffer for their sins. He lamented of their refusal. Friend, a, a lament is a voice of love and profound caring, a vision of what could have been and a grief over its loss. It's a rehearsal of, of tough hope painfully released with sorrow and loss. Weeping is not a sin, friends. Lamenting is a proper response to sin. And, and, and it's probably a, a missing element of our Christian walk. If someone were ever to say that Jesus is not merciful, it's only because they're not paying attention. They don't read of him in the word. God is a merciful God. He's a compassionate God. And we see it clearly here. When he drew near the city and saw the city, he wept over it. He was weeping with compassion for lost sinners who could not or, or would not see who he, who he was. Is there anything more tragic than someone who comes close to touching Jesus but never grabs hold of him by faith? Jesus knew what lay in store for them and what we read here is him weeping. See, instead of peace, Jerusalem would face war. Enemies would descend upon the city and overtake it, offering no means of escape. Jesus seems to be clearly predicting the destruction of the city in A.D. 70. The city would be leveled to the ground. The devastation would be complete so that no stone would be left upon another. Children would not escape. They would experience the consequence of their parents' sin. Jerusalem would be judged because it did not know the time of its visitation. 
Visitation in the Old Testament can signify God's deliverance and help or its judgment. And this visitation here that Jesus mentioned is actually seen as positive because Jesus has come. Jesus, who is God's Christ, brings peace, the good news, the kingdom, and they don't acknowledge it. They reject him, and they will face judgment. And how does he respond, knowing what's going to happen? He weeps. Friends, never imagine that God is unmoved by the sufferings of lost sinners. He's a gracious God. When was the last time you shed tears for people who did not know Jesus? Especially people in our city. What's your response when you drive through Seattle and you see the effect of sin? Do you weep as Jesus did or do you criticize? J.C. Ryle said, we know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. Jesus had great concern for those that he ministered and lived among. And I pray that we would reflect the same compassion that Jesus displays for us here. Well, his compassion is still there, but we see a change in demeanor. Look at verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house should be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And we're watching the authority of Jesus in living color here. Jerusalem may have had a a population of around 80,000 at this point. With the influx of Passover pilgrims now, that that total would have been pushed up to 200,000 around this time. Most worshipers couldn't bring their sacrificial animals with them, so there was a market. This market was taking place in the temple complex, in the court of the Gentiles, this huge 35-acre area in which non-Jews would come. And that's the area in which Jesus is driving out the people. Luke's description here is very tame compared to Matthew and Mark. And as Jesus is driving them out, he's comparing their work to that of robbers, of which he alludes then to Jeremiah 7. And he's also going to call out Isaiah 56, 7. But in Jeremiah, he calls to mind this famous sermon that Jeremiah preached at the very gates of this temple. And Jeremiah said, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And that's exactly what the temple had become at that time, a den of robbers. The people of Jeremiah's day were robbing God by neglecting the poor and forsaking the widows and abandoning the orphans. And yet in their hypocrisy, they still came to worship as if nothing else was wrong. In effect, the temple had become a safe house. A place for criminals to gather and to not repent. And Jesus is seeing the same thing here. And it makes him righteously angry. In all their buying and selling, they were neglecting the poor and forgetting true worship of God. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7 when he declares what his house is for. He says, this is what Isaiah says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And Yahweh promises in that day will come when foreigners and other rejects who become his servants then and will be made joyful and his house be called a house of prayer for all people. And this angry entrance that Jesus made in the temple showed where his passion lied. Jesus had a passion for the lost. 
about bringing those that were on the outside in. Jesus had a passion for, for the poor, for remembering to show mercy to people that the society among them had forgotten and ignored. And Jesus had a passion for justice, for standing against persons or systems who perpetuate evil. But he had a passion for worshiping God with a sincere and true heart. What are your passions? Do they line up with Jesus' passions? In verse 47, as he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus continues to teach the people there, and the people have influence, the people have power, and they're determined to listen to him, and yet the leaders want to destroy him. The chief priests, the scribes, those with political influence, they want Jesus gone. Jesus is threatening them. It's, it's one thing to come in and destroy the place, to make it your own. It's another thing to sway people to gain their trust and have their ear. And Jesus has their ear. They're hanging on his words, Luke says. But the religious leaders, they're, they're not ready for this. They, they don't want this. And so they devise a plan to test him again. That's the third point here, the ill-advised testing of Jesus. See, what we just read in, in chapter 19, Jesus rearranged the furniture in the temple. You don't do that unless you're the owner, right? You invite me over to, for dinner at your house and I come in and I look at your uh, setup in the living room and I just think, I'm going to move this here and move that there. What do you think? Right? You, you, you look at me strangely and think, you don't have a right to do this. Who do you think you are moving the furniture? That's what the, that's what the religious leaders are thinking. Who do you think you are? Who does this guy think he is? Look at chapter 20, verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things and who it is that gave you this authority. Jesus, why did you move things around? This is our place. Jesus and his followers were in the temple. Most likely they were probably in the exterior portion of the porch. This exterior portion had these 40-foot columns that held up an elaborately decorated roof and, and these made magnificent porch that they could walk in, that they would consider, it was still considered the temple area, but this area was great for walking and talking and discussing things, for gathering and for selling as we just saw. This is most likely the area that Jesus cleaned up in chapter 19. And so this group comes up, these chief priests and scribes and elders, they, and they come to test Jesus. They had to find out what he was doing now and by what authority he had to do these things. See, Jesus was a self-appointed rabbi, and these leaders want to know. They want to know, how do you have this authority that you think you have? And this balanced group of, of three here, the chief priests who ran the temple and the scribes who were the teachers and preachers, and the elders who were the non-clergy statesmen of the families. They come and they question him. Perhaps the high priest, Ananias and Caiaphas, the captain of the temple, were there. And this is, so this is, I'm sure, an official delegation to come and question Jesus. And they say, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who gave you this authority? As I think about it, at, at its heart, this is a question that many people have about Jesus today. Perhaps you came in this morning thinking that same thing about Jesus. Jesus, what gives you the right to say these things? What gives you the right, Jesus, to be Lord over my life? What gives you the right to tell me what to do with my life, with my time, with my energy, with my money, with my home, with my family? What gives you the right, Jesus? What authority do you have in these things? 
That's the mode in which they approach Jesus. And Jesus now turns the table on them and asks them a question about John the Baptist. Look at verse 3. He answered them, I, I, will, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why do you not believe in him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is done dancing here for these men. John the Baptist's ministry was significant. His ministry had been point to point people to Jesus and to offer of salvation and to call people to repent, thus preparing the way for God's kingdom to come. And what did John proclaim in Luke 3.3? He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And later in that chapter, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. They knew about John and his ministry. They had heard him preaching. They were called out into the wilderness. It, it, it made the news. They knew that John had, had told them plainly that Jesus was the coming Messiah. In, in another gospel, John points to them, look, there's the Lamb of God. They knew who John was. They knew who Jesus was. But they didn't believe that, that John's baptism was heaven-sent. And if they said they did, it would only make people wonder, well, why didn't you get baptized by John? And so they discuss it with one another. They huddle around. What answer will be most feasible to, to help our reputation? To salvage our life? They are truly uninterested in answering Jesus' question with, with honesty and truthfulness. Because ultimately... They are politically motivated. Their prized possession was power, and they could sense that Jesus was here to strip that power away from them. And they had to preserve their power. They had to protect their power, their position. And Jesus now had trapped them into answering their own question. See, Jesus said of John and Luke Chapter 7, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then verse 29, when all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They didn't respond. They didn't repent. They didn't submit themselves to baptism. They rejected the message. They rejected the messenger. And they didn't want to admit what they really thought, that they believed John was not from God that they believed that his authority was merely human. And why did they not want to admit that? Because the people loved John. They believed his message. They responded to him. And they were following Jesus. You need to understand that John the Baptist was insanely popular at this time. He was already, he was already gone, but people remembered his ministry. And they, these leaders, out of fear thought, if, if we really say what we really think, people are going to rise up against us. And if you're seeking power, and if you're seeking authority and control, they knew that they would lose it in a quick minute. It'd be gone. So they feared the people's rejection of them. And they responded to Jesus. They answered that they did not know where it came from, and they're lying. They are faithless and gutless. Why was Jesus' response to the Jewish leaders so brilliant? Because Jesus had used their ploy against them. He had trapped them to answer their own question. He had the authority to cleanse the temple. He had the power to rearrange the furniture because he was the owner. 
It was him. He was the Messiah. And you know this to be true. Only the owner has the right to rearrange the furniture. Only the owner could dictate how things should be done. And Jesus is declaring that I am the Messiah. I am king. I have power and authority to do this. And they hear it and they see it and they deny it. What do we learn about Jesus and about the chief priests and scribes? We learn that Jesus is the Messiah and the religious leaders do not want him to be. They are fearful of losing their position and so they desperately grab hold onto their power. And those who do not have the courage to tell the truth will ultimately be snared by their own lies. Those who do not have the courage to tell the truth will ultimately be snared by their own lies. They ultimately feared people more than they feared God. How about you, friends? This strikes a nerve, if we're all honest. Do you fear people more than you fear God? Are you more controlled about what others think about you more than what God thinks of you? Friends, it would serve you greatly if you spent some time today considering that question. And I want to challenge you to invite some friends into that discussion, some fellow church members into that. Perhaps spend some time asking a friend or a spouse. Ask them, does it look like I fear people more than I fear God? And give them permission to answer honestly so that you can grow through this. Spend some time together praying about it, seeing what God's word says about it to encourage you to fear God more than men. Jesus really does have the authority to dictate how things should go. He has the authority to move the furniture. Does he have the authority to teach about heaven, about the way to get to God? Our last point in the the next parable, Jesus will show us authority and why we should listen to him. This is the closing verdict of Jesus. Verses 9 through 18. Look at chapter 20, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led out to to tenants and went into another country for a long while. While the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. The, the vineyard was a national symbol, very familiar to the Jewish people. It's like mentioning the bald eagle for us as Americans. We know what that means. Or the maple leaf for Canadians, right? We know what that symbol means. That's the vineyard here. So when Jesus begins this parable about a vineyard, the people knew he was talking about them, about their relationship with God. But in this parable, we learn right away in these first first few verses, it shows us a deep corruption of the human nature. See, knowing our history here in the past, Israelites had either abused or killed many of the prophets of God. Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was locked in stocks, put in prison, and dangled up to his armpits in cesspit. Micaiah from 1 Kings 22 was imprisoned and starved. Hananiah was imprisoned and put in stocks. Zechariah was stoned in this temple courtyard where Jesus is speaking. Jesus is standing in this very courtyard giving this parable and pointing at them and their history and how they treated the prophets that had come before. And I'm sure you'd be able to cut the tension with a knife. They knew what Jesus was talking about. 
The, the vineyard, as we often see in the Old Testament, represents Israel. Isaiah 5 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did, it not, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. In this passage in Isaiah 5, it's a judgment falling on Israel. But in this parable that, look, that Jesus gives here, it's judgment that's coming to fall on the leaders. If the tenant farmers stand for the religious leaders, the vineyard owner represents God himself. The owner of the vineyard is patient and he sends a servant and another servant and they, they beat and they bruise them. And again, he sends a third and he's wounded. And so what should he do next? Look at verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. As soon as we hear these words, we know that we're hearing something very important. Jesus is talking about himself here. This parable is really about him. This was the last resort. The people wouldn't listen. They wouldn't repent on their own. In fact, they couldn't do it on their own. They needed a rescuer. And even before we hear the rest of the story, we, we know what the wicked tenants will do. They will not respect this man's son any more than he respected the other servants. And I'm sure the listeners in this moment want to just shout, no, not your beloved son. Don't you know what, what's going to happen? They're going to kill him. They're, they're out for blood. And that's exactly what they did. Verse 14, and when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This story is much more than a parable. It's a prophetic autobiography. Jesus knew why he had come. He was not surprised of what was going to transpire in Jerusalem. But they would be surprised by God's response to their wickedness. What does justice require God to do? The tenants have murdered his beloved son. What do you expect God to do? The owner, Christ said, would respond to his son's murder by destroying the contract workers and giving the vineyard to others. God's spiritual interests in the earth and the care of people who, who believed in and served the true God of Israel would pass out of the hands of, of the priesthood and eventually to a large extent out of Israel's hands altogether. And the response to this, when they heard this, they said, surely not. Surely God would never take the vineyard away from the Jews and give it to the Gentiles. It was unthinkable, but it was true. And then Jesus quotes here, Psalm 118, about that coming true. The rejected stone was about to become the murdered son. Verse 17, but he looked directly at them, at these religious teachers, and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. Do you know why Jesus provoked so much anger and jealousy with the religious leaders? Because Jesus was a threat to their power, to their way of life. They wanted to live any way they wanted. And instead of repenting and falling on their knees to follow him, they reject him as Lord. They reject Jesus, the true cornerstone. And God judges them. 
We must never flatter ourselves that God cannot get angry. He is definitely a God of compassion and grace, but he is also a consuming fire. His spirit will not always strive with men, and there will come a day when his patience will come to an end, and he will come, and he will judge the earth. Friends, today is the day of salvation. The day of visitation. For those of you who continue to dwell in your sin and rejection of Jesus, friends, today is the day to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. His patience won't always be there. And so I implore you, friends, to turn to him this morning and to trust in him and follow him. See, how Jesus is treated determines your life ultimately. Think about it, friends. The the tenant's most basic crime was that they were acting as if they should be the owners instead of the caretakers of the vineyard. Instead of using the land for the benefit of the owner since it was his, they wanted to use it for their own selfish purposes. And sin tempts us to live our lives as if we're the owners and not just the tenants. Sin is living as if we're making the rules in God's vineyard, thinking that we are ultimately the ones in charge. But God is the one in charge. He has the right to move the furniture in your life. He has the right to be in control of your life. Do you see the insanity of sin in this passage? Do you see the self-destructfulness of sin? Those who reject Jesus' lordship think that they're free, but they will find that they're enslaved. And they fall and they trip over Jesus, and at the end of the day, they'll be crushed. And if we fail to trust in the king, we'll be crushed by the stone. After seeing all this, we recognize again why Jesus is weeping in verse 41 in chapter 19. He knew what was to happen, and he sees it, and he weeps. He knew that he would be rejected as the only beloved son. His weeping wasn't prideful, it was was loving. And this is why Jesus speaks so plainly about final judgment. He wants everyone to know that he is the beloved son of God the precious stone of salvation. But he's also the crushing stone of judgment. They needed to see their sin of rejection if they're ever going to be saved. One Puritan said, Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. We must know the depth and malignity of our disease in order to appreciate the great physician. When we see the blackness of our hearts and the gospel comes against that blackness, we see how precious and beautiful he is and what Christ has done for us. It's like a a jeweler you know, when you're about to sell a diamond, what do they do? They, they, they bring this black cloth and they put this beautiful diamond so you can see all of the intricacies. You see what you're going to get. You say, it is beautiful. And friends, the only way to be saved is to see the blackness of our sin. And Christ becomes Beautiful. We can't help but follow him then. 
Friends, do you know Jesus Christ? Are you following him in your life? Can I introduce you to Jesus? I'd love to sit and talk with you today. That beats chilly any day. To just talk through the gospel. And we as a church want to walk with you as you follow Jesus. That's one of the reasons why we are a church, to walk with one another. And so we want to walk with you. We want to help others follow Jesus. Christian, what have you learned about Jesus this morning? What have you been reminded of? He is our king, and he has every right to direct our lives. Are you living in submission to him? What have you learned this morning about those who resist Jesus? Their end is not encouraging. Their end is tragic. Is there someone in your life that you need to warn of this end? Friends, how how do these things that we've looked at increase your certainty of Jesus' promises in the future? See, what Jesus says about himself is true. And what was said about him in the Old Testament came true. And so I pray that we will walk away from this morning more certain of who Jesus is and his promises for our lives. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you are kind and your patience with us this morning. God, your kind and your patience for those that are seated here who have continued to reject you and to reject your word. For those that are seated among us who really want to be Lord of their own life who really just want to be king, who reject you. And I pray, God, that you would soften their hearts, that you would soften that opposition, that you would give them faith to believe. God, you have graciously led us and shown us time and again who you are, and what you came to do by sending your son. Help us all to remember again this morning that you have every right to rearrange the furniture in our lives. You own it all. You are the owner of the vineyard. We are only the tenants. So help us to serve you and not ourselves. Help us to love you more than we love this world. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to live in a way that brings honor and glory to you as we leave this place. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.